this week has been a, uh, a rough week for me. Not only was I uh, fighting allergies, but I was also fighting what do I preach this morning? And as soon as I, I posted or started thinking about the different things I should be preaching, you know, I, I got barraged by a number of people saying, oh, do you know how difficult Mother's Day really is? You know, there's, there's moms who have terrible relationships or difficult relationships with their moms. And it's like, this is not a day to celebrate, but a day to mourn. You get other ones who say, man, I'm not a mom, but I want to be a mom. In fact, I want to be married, but there's, it's, it's not happening. Or maybe you've suffered abuse of some sort, or maybe your relationship is difficult. So I, I get, I posted, you know, I recognize as a pastor, this is supposed to be a joyous and a momentous morning where we celebrate the moms in our lives, but it's also a painful time for many. And so this morning... I'm going to bypass that. How's that? This morning, I'm going to give a message that uh, applies not to just moms, but to all of us, of what really gives us the hope that we need to have as men, as women, as children, as believers in Christ. And for those of you who are not yet believers in Christ, what is the hope that we have in Christ? So, my friend Jim Vellinga who's from Ontario, as he was even trying to figure out what is he going to be preaching, he said this on Facebook. As I sit here wondering on my ser- working on my sermon for Ascension Day, I wonder, why is it that we have such big celebrations for Christmas, Good Friday, and Easter, but in comparison neglect or at times completely forget the Ascension of our Lord? Another friend of mine, Peter Butler from New York, said, he is considering, but he knows he will never do, cancel Christmas. All these holidays are important. But what is the thing that we, why do we celebrate what we do? We come together to celebrate the work of Jesus Christ, his completed work. And as evangelical Christians, we often look at the cross and say, that is it. Jesus died for my sins, and that is, that's it. He died for me. He shed his blood so that the wrath of God is no longer on me. And then we get to quickly move to Easter, right? And we bring out all the, the bunnies and the the little squishy marshmallow rabbit things that we just chow down and the jelly bellies and all those kind of things. And we celebrate Easter because that is where it's at. But the gospel message is not just in those two events, nor is it just in Christmas. The gospel also includes the ascension of Christ. And today, actually this past Thursday, was 40 days after Christ's resurrection. And the church universal celebrates the ascension of Christ. So this morning we're going to look, and we're actually going to go back in time to one of our earlier sections of Acts. We're in a 68-some-week series through the book of Acts. And I want to encourage you, in your Bibles, your pew Bibles, or the Bibles that you have, turn back to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. And we're going to be looking at 
the stoning of Stephen. We're going to look specifically at verses 54 through 60, but focusing in especially on verse 56. Follow along with me. And as, as I've been doing, encouraging you, uh, in your pews you will now find a very brightly printed piece of paper for sermon notes. For those of you who like to take sermon notes, it's also, there's a space also in your, your bulletin. This way we can actually see who's taking notes and who's, who's not. So, follow along with me, starting at chapter 7, starting at verse 54, page 916. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, that being the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, and this is talking about Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed at, together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And, and when he had said this, he fell asleep. This is the word of the Lord. We have no doubt many people have been greatly impressed with the testimony of Stephen as he stood against the hostile uh, Sanhedrin and was martyred by stoning. It was a brutal death. But clearly his faith was intact as he cried out to Lord Jesus to intercede for those who were oppressing him. The question for me as a modern day Christian in 2013 is what was it that gave him such composure and what gave him such boldness in the face of death? Right? 2013. Many of us feel oppressed because, man, we don't have all the religious liberties that we had. But that, that, that pales in comparison to what Stephen was going through. What gave him such composure and what gave him such boldness? What gave him such confidence to face an otherwise horrific death? Quite simply, it was because of his conviction that Jesus was indeed alive. Jesus was alive. Stephen was absolutely confident that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. And not only that, but he had ascended to the right hand of God the Father. Stephen was convinced that Jesus was with God. You remember the story? It's clear. He was one of the seven that were set apart by the apostles to do the work of a deacon. They were to care for the material needs of, of the widows and, and some of the wider issues of the material disbursement of the church, church's resources in Jerusalem. He was a man full of faith, a man full of wisdom, and was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was a competent Bible student and a proclaimer of God's word. 
But this very thing landed him in hot water. He was, he was engaging unbelieving Jews in the synagogues of the freedmen. He was mo and most likely there he encountered Saul. The man who became later on the Apostle Paul. The man as in our current study is the one who is now on his second missionary journey in Asia. Much blood would be shed. Much blood would be shed before an amazing transformation took place, including Stephen's very own blood. Stephen was being arraigned by the Sanhedrin, and he was being condemned as a, a blasphemer, someone who spoke against God. He took the stand and made the biblical case that he, in fact, was an Orthodox Jew. That he made his case that he believed that the law of God, the promised land that was given by God, the liturgy that even surrounded the temple of God, all pointed to the Messiah, all pointed to Jesus Christ, the very one whom they crucified. Stephen made the case that he was not guilty. But he sealed his fate as he pointed a confident, convicting, and condemning finger at the real blasphemers his accusers. The straw that broke the camel's back was when Stephen gazed and being filled with the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. That sealed the deal. When he, what he saw, he could not keep to himself. When his eyes were opened, he could not keep to himself. He said, behold, I see the, the heavens have opened and the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. If this was me, at that point I would just keep my mouth shut and just say, man, how do I get out of this stoning? What can I do to dodge that bullet, so to speak? But when he saw Jesus, he said, behold, look! There is Jesus. There is Jesus. And this statement put the council in a very difficult position. For it was the very same claim that Jesus had made. That Jesus had made. That charged him. That they charged him with blasphemy. And now resulted in them turning him over to the Romans to be crucified. And now Stephen, some three years later... Some three years later, Stephen claimed that he indeed saw Jesus right there where Jesus said he would be. The Sanhedrin had to either admit that Jesus was right or further, they had to compound their own guilt by putting to death one of Jesus' believers. They chose the latter. Significantly, Stephen knew that Jesus was God by virtue of seeing him in his position in heaven. The word gaze means to, to, to gaze intently or to, to, to behold or to fix, to earnestly see, to fasten one's eyes on, to look earnestly. The idea, obviously, is that Stephen's entire focus, everything about him was focused on the risen and ascended Lord. 
And what he was seeing made a huge, a huge difference on how he behaved. What he saw changed the way he died. Stephen saw Jesus at the right hand of the Father where he had been ever since his first resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus proved to Stephen that in Jesus, that indeed Jesus had all authority in heaven and on earth. In other words, it was proof that he was God. As Stephen breathed his last breath, he cried out to the Lord interceding, praying for his enemies to forgive those who were taking his life. Does it sound like anybody else that we know? On the cross, Jesus himself said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And Stephen, as the rocks were being hurled, as they were stoning him, the very same things, forgive them Amazing? Absolutely. It's amazing grace is what it is. How can we explain this composure in the midst of a horrible way to die? Well, by this point, I'm sure you can answer. It's simply that Jesus' ascension made all the difference in the world. Made all the difference in the world. You see, Stephen lived well because Jesus had risen indeed. And he died well because Jesus had ascended to the right hand of the Father. He lived well and he died well. And the text tells us that Stephen's focused gaze was on the risen Lord. And because he could see so well, he could die so well. Because his eyes were open, he was able to not only live well, but because his spiritual eyes were wide open, he was able to die well. And you, this morning, how is your sight? It's a question that we all have to wrestle with if we believe that we're all on some kind of spiritual journey of one shape or another. No matter where, what you believe about God, we are all on some spiritual journey in this life. How is your sight? The remainder of our time, I want us to see the difference that the ascension truly makes. I want to do so by emphasizing our need to constantly gaze on the risen and ascended Christ. Our first point is this. We need to be gazing at the risen Lord. Gazing at the risen Lord is the effect of grace. Gazing at him is the effect of grace. Our text tells us that Peter or Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit. Why does it tell us this? Why is this important? Well, it came about because Jesus died. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. In fulfillment of all of his promises, the Holy Spirit came to the earth to regenerate, to make alive those that he came to die for. It was only on this basis that the Holy Spirit came. Let me put it this way. S Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit because of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, Stephen would have never been any different than his accusers, and neither would we. 
We would never believe that Jesus rose from the dead if we were not irresistibly convinced by the third member of the Trinity. If the Holy Spirit has not changed our lives, there's no way that we could believe in who Jesus is. Look at John 16. Read that and be convinced. Clearly, those who persecuted Stephen to death did not believe. Despite the overwhelming evidence, seeing the glory of God is why Jesus came to the earth to live, why he died and why he rose again. The reasons that these men responded the way they did was because they could not they would not see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It was impossible. By God's grace, Stephen believed. The contrast in, was introduced in verse 55. If you look at verse 55, it starts off with this. But he, but he. And sometimes we, we, we read too quickly over conjunctions, right? We think that they're inconsequential. But he is critical because it's creating a contrast here. The unbelieving, because of their unseeing, Sanhedrin gnashed their teeth while Stephen gazed. What a gift. What a gift of grace that Stephen could see. And what a gift of grace that many of us can see the risen Lord as well. Stephen was given the grace to see. And we need to learn from this that salvation comes from God and God alone. There's nothing that you can do apart from this gift of grace to warm your heart to Christ. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. Only he can raise the spiritually dead. And this is inseparable from his making us to believe that he raised Christ, who was physically dead. In other words, believer, brothers and sisters in Christ, thank God for his gracious power in making you a believer. He made you a believer. He made you a believer in the resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ. The second point is this. Gazing at the risen Lord empowers us with grace. It empowers us with grace. The word grace, some of you hear this, oh, we just got to give grace to this person. Oh, we just got to give grace. It's kind of our Christianese way of saying, oh, we just got to love them no matter what, right? At its root, it has the idea of unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor. Unearned. Sometimes, though, sometimes the word is used to speak of God's undeserved strength that he graciously gives us. God's undeserved strength to us, to strengthen us. Clearly, in this account before us, we see God's supernatural strength being given to Stephen in his hour of greatest need. I'll tell you, at that moment, I would have been done. Uncle, I'm done. Tell me what you want to, what you want to hear because I, I'm willing to recant. As stones are being hurled at me, as I'm in the face of death, man, you don't have to twist my arm very hard. But Stephen, in his greatest hour of need, the greatest hour of need, God gave 
his supernatural strength. His response was, Stephen's response was superhuman. And as we have seen, it, it, it was his gaze. It was his gaze that empowered him for this trial. It was his gaze at the risen and ascended Lord that empowered him to do the otherwise unimaginable. No one can do that unless you are mentally unstable. Stephen's gaze at the risen Lord empowered him to even behave cross-culturally. What was true of Stephen is no less true for us. If we gaze at the risen Lord, if, if we stay focused on the one who rose from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God the Father, then we too can do the otherwise unthinkable. In the words of William Carey, a great missionary, we can not only expect great things from God, but we can attempt great things for him. We can even attempt great things for him because of his given us supernatural strength. For example, first example, the issue of raising godly children in the midst of an ungodly society. Sometimes as a parent, it is, and moms, you know what I'm talking about, is absolutely overwhelming. You hear the stories of your sons and daughters coming home from school and you go, oh my gosh. What are we doing? Is it possible for my child to turn out okay in this landscape of evil? The key for us, the key for us is to keep before us that Jesus Christ is risen and is ascended, meaning he is reigning. Jesus is reigning. This reality is necessary and it's empowering. It keeps us believing as we are reminded that he is still even interceding for us. Additionally, God, I believe this with all my heart, that God is committed to saving families. Look up the biblical promises and look into heaven at the risen Christ, trusting him to save your children, to sanctify them, to change them. He can overcome your child's agnosticism or atheism and rebellion. God can do that. Are you intensive in your efforts to raise your children to love the Lord? It can and must be done by the grace of God and in his strength. This world, I believe, can be changed one family at a time. One family at a time. Second example of doing it in his strength, his supernatural strength, is take the fulfillment of the great, uh, great commission. Christ's lordship is rooted in his resurrection and his ascension. And since Jesus has ascended, we have every reason to believe his promise that anywhere his church goes, he goes with the church. Anywhere Missio Dei Church goes or the church universal goes, Jesus goes with it. And that should give us hope. 
That our attempts are not just these feeble attempts of being Christian, but that Jesus Christ is empowering us and giving us strength, that he even goes before us, conquering the works of the devil. Another example is this, the issue of evangelism. We need to realize that this record of Stephen's death is not a fabrication. It's not just a mere story. It's a historical reality. And it's probably the strongest evidence for its historicity is the conversion that happens later on in Acts chapter 9. Somebody was converted because of what took place here. And who was that person? The Apostle Paul, who was known as Saul, who is breathing out murderous threats. If God can change the heart of a hardened man who is out to destroy the church, he can change anyone in your neighborhood for his glory's sake. There's a reason to believe that it was the way in which Stephen died that was used by the Spirit in conjunction with his word to convict and to convince and to convert Saul. Throw this slide up for me, Leah. You're living well. You're living well and dying well may have a lot to do with how others live and die. You're living well and you're dying well, being empowered by the risen Christ, having the strength that he gives you may have a lot to do with how others live and die. It may have a huge impact on your spouse. It may have a huge impact on your children, your grandchildren, your neighbors, your colleagues, your fellow church members, and even, yes, your enemies. Fourth example is the issue of sanctification. God empowers and gives us strength to be made holy. John Piper has said that sin is what we do when we are not satisfied in God. Youch, you know. It's what we do when we're not satisfied in God. We, we go on our merry way and do what fulfills our flesh. And there's much wisdom in this observation. Because why? Well, the antidote is our gaze. The antidote, the fix, is our gaze. Clearly, Stephen's preoccupation with the glory of God in the face of the risen Christ empowered him to live in a holy way. Live in a holy way. And so it is with you and me. Colossians 1, or sorry, Colossians 3, 1 through 3 says this. It, it, it instructs believers to have a heavenly focus. Listen to these words. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on this earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. This focus, this focus will enable you to overcome sinful habits and addictions. It will allow you to break free from sinful bondage that may be in your life, whatever it may be. It enables you to gaze at your all-powerful, risen Lord and find satisfaction in Him. Find your contentment in Him and rest 
in him. The fifth example relates to the local church life. And I'll be honest. I can testify to many times that I have been tempted to absolutely despair with reference to the spiritual life of, our, of the church, to the numerical growth of the church, and sometimes even with reference to our financial growth. I've tended to despair. Is there no hope? And yet, the risen Lord, ascended Lord, gives us hope. He enables change. He enables change. He empowers sanctification. He empowers reconciliation, being made right. And he produces growth. And yes, someday, our long-term vision is to be a church that plants churches. Someday, he will produce multiplication. He will. I trust him for that kind of growth. The next thing, next point, is gazing at the risen Lord equips us with graciousness. Mom, I want you, moms, I want you to hear this. Gazing at Christ equips your graciousness. Not just towards your children, but even towards some of us men. The resurrection made a profound difference in how Stephen responded to his enemies. Did you see that? Seeing the glory of God is why Jesus came to live and die again. And the reason that these men responded the way that they did was because they could not, they would not see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So what did they do? They gnashed their teeth, just an annoying, terrible sound in the first place. But you know, behind all this gnashing of teeth, the grinding of teeth, was anger against this man and the gospel. There was deep anger. And while the Sanhedrin gnashed their teeth at this man, what did he do? He kept gazing at the sun. His eyes were fixed. And so was able to be gracious to those who even stoned him. He was gracious. And the same is expected of us, those who believe in this risen Lord. It's to be observed that Stephen spoke the truth to these men. He spoke the truth. He didn't pussyfoot around and kind of flower it up. He spoke straightforward language in doing so. Yet his speech at no doubt was at the same time seasoned with grace. When we truly believe that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, when we truly believe that he is seated at the right hand of God the Father, when we truly believe that, then our disposition will reflect our belief. We will be gracious. When your spouse disappoints you, your belief in the risen and ascended Lord will allow you to respond graciously. Husbands, there should be an amen there. Amen. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. When your children 
do wrong. When your children do wrong, your belief will inform your gracious response. When your critics defame you and demean you, when your enemies harm you, when your fellow church members disappoint you, it is the belief in the resurrected and ascended Lord that will enable you to be gracious. And it will, he will give you the strength to be gracious in those times. In other words, like Jesus, you will not respond in kind. Stephen had the ability and the opportunity to strike out, right? To strike out and just say, you all, you're going to hell in a handbasket. Go ahead, throw another stone. I know where you're going to go. Burn, baby, burn. He had the right and the opportunity at that point to kick back. But instead, what did he do? He responded out of the grace that has been given to him in the strength that has been given to him to respond, not in kind, but out of grace. But again, this is not supposing that Jesus, this is supposing that Jesus is who he claimed to be and as evidenced by the resurrection and the ascension. Consider these words of Tim Keller. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said, right? If he didn't rise, he's just a really good guy. But then he goes on to say this, the issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. In other words, if Jesus has not risen, then go ahead and, like the Sanhedrin, pick up stones and take your best shot. But if you have come to see the Savior as risen and ascended and is your advocate interceding and praying for you, then trust in him that all things, all things will work together for your good and God's glory. All things and then graciously respond when you are being conformed to the character of Christ. Related to this truth is the fact that the forgiven are forgiving. The forgiven, those who are in Christ and deeply forgiven of all their sins, are forgiving people. Paul said that Jesus was raised for our justification or for our justification. In other words, it is because of the resurrection and the subsequent intercession of Christ that we are continually being forgiven. And those who realize the enormity of this grace will be inclined to be gracious to others. As we are continually being forgiven for our sins, as Christ is continually interceding and praying and, and leading and guiding us and changing us by the power of the gospel, as we are being changed from one degree of glory to another, so we too respond in the same way, being gracious to others. A believer who is ungracious and a believer who is bitter is one who needs help with his or her gaze. Next point. Gazing at the risen Lord must be our goal. Must be our goal. Stephen knew where to look. 
He wanted to see the risen and ascended Lord. We must keep before us the truth that Jesus Christ is risen and that he is ascended. Not merely just the benefits of, of this to us. We need to believe to be impressed with Jesus for who he actually is. Stephen knew that Jesus rose from the dead and this was proof of his divine sonship and therefore of his lordship, that he was king, that he was lord over all. And this made a profound difference in his life and it will in yours too. Think of the disciples in the early church. And how they experienced the risen Lord time and again because they needed to. It was not a mere luxury, but a necessity. God gave them what they needed and when they needed it. Is our problem that we are too self-sufficient because we're not challenged enough? I pray that we leave our comfort zone and then perhaps we'll be in a far better vantage point from where we can see Jesus at the right hand of the Father. Jesus was and is seated with God now. This was a point of fact. But only the eyes of faith could see it. So it is today. He is Lord. He has risen and ascended. And just because, just because not all can see this does not diminish the reality. Just because of a spouse or a child or a co-worker cannot see it does not mean that it is not a reality. It is real. It is real. Furthermore, those of us who can see. Those of us who can see have the enormous privilege and a great responsibility, don't we? Privilege and responsibility. Stephen's words, behold, was both an exclamation an exhortation. It was a warning as well as an invitation. When somebody says, hey look, check it out over there. You don't just go, hmm. That's nice. Yeah, I have no idea what he's getting all excited about. But when somebody says, look, all eyes tend to look. It's an invitation. It's an invitation if we would see that Jesus Christ was risen, then we would be careful how we live. Further, if we would see the risen Lord, then we would invite and warn others to see as well. Look. Look at Christ. Fix on him. He's the answer. He's the hope. He's calling. Will you respond? Can you gaze at the risen Lord? Only by God's grace, only by God's grace can you begin to do so.
by the grace of God, you can refresh your gaze daily. And let us do so. And then help one another in this wonderful privilege. After all, he's risen and ascended indeed. Amen. Let's pray. God, I help the, ask that you help us see. And sometimes, Lord, we, we need to pray those prayers. Help my unbelief. God, help my unbelief. Because, Lord, I confess that there's moments throughout my day, my week, my month, my year, my, even moment by moment, by moment where I, my eyes aren't fixed. And I don't believe in the strength that you give me. And I try to do it on my own. I, there's moments and days where I'm just absolutely ungracious and unkind. And I forget about the grace that you have given me. The grace to see you in the first place. And the grace that's being poured out on me daily. And the grace that should be flowing freely. God, I forget. We forget. God. Help us to respond. Give us eyes to see. To see you ascended. Help us fix our eyes on you as the reigning king who is sovereign and in control of all things. All things. Jesus, I thank you for your finished and completed work that was done on the cross. How you who knew no sin took on sin for us and you bore the wrath of God so that we could become children of God. You transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. You have done this perfectly. You have given us light. You have invited us to come and dine with you, to be seated with you. And Lord, we, we even look forward to that final day when all things are made right, when we can sit around that great banquet table and we can enjoy festivities with you and we can constantly look at you, gaze, be fixed on you and enjoy you and celebrate you and worship you. God, help us today to prepare for that final day. And God, if there is a brother or sister here today who needs to respond and you have opened their eyes by your grace and they need to respond to your grace, Lord, let them do so by recognizing their brokenness, their sinful nature, their, their separation from you and their need for you. Open their eyes so they can fix on you. Give them ears that hear and a heart that willingly responds to your grace. Give them a boldness to respond and change the Lord. We know you can do it. For you did it 
with a hardened man by the name of Saul. And you changed him on the Damascus Road. Lord, as we come to the table together as brothers and sisters in Christ, prepare our hearts, Lord. Change us. Make us aware of the sin, the stench in our lives. and May we repent, confess it and repent and come back to you, keeping our eyes fixed on you that we may be content in you and satisfied in you. We love you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus by the strength that he gives us. Amen.